All righty, good evening again. Welcome you back to your seats. Grab your Bibles. We'll pick up where we left off last week, the 23rd chapter of 2 Samuel. You do realize we only have one more chapter in 2 Samuel, and I'm ordering my first king commentaries, so I'm excited about that. It's always nice. It's bittersweet to leave a book that we've been in for several months and then go on to new territory. All right, let's pray. Ask the Lord for his blessing. Heavenly Father, we know these truths set before us tonight are spiritually discerned. We need the help of the Spirit to open our understanding. And toward that end, we pray that Christ would be honored and glorified uh, through our efforts to hear your voice and to put these truths into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's start with this thought. What makes a hero... A hero. Uh, The dictionary defines it this way. A man of distinguished courage or ability, admired for his brave deeds and noble qualities. And of course, the feminine version of that word is heroine and with the same exact definition. Now, all kinds of modern day heroes we have. We have humanitarians who are heroes in that they undertake great causes to relieve suffering around the world. Or we have sports heroes and military heroes. I was reading today about animal heroes, which Buddy the German Shepherd. He was trained how to dial 911, you know, just with his nose. He didn't dial it, but, you know. uh, And he saved his owner's life. When he went down, of course, he was able to to call for help, and that was really cool. There's random individuals that do unbelievably extraordinary feats of of bravery. Uh, The subway hero, you remember him from uh, 2007, Wesley Autry. He jumped onto the tracks to save somebody had a seizure, fell into the tracks off the platform, and he jumped and and repositioned that person in between where there was a gap and then laid on top of them as the train went by. That's amazing. And they both lived to talk about it. That's just amazing. The main idea, of course, is putting yourself in harm's way for the good of another. Now, how about the biblical definition of being a hero? Well, we've certainly been reading about a hero in the life of David ever since 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now, from the time Goliath's nine-foot body hit the ground until he becomes king first over Judah and then over all of Israel. What an incredible hero and a man of God David is. You know the badge he gets to wear. Uh, A man after God's own heart. That's incredible. That kind of devotion to God. When I was at Bible college, we, I've told you this before, we had this little uh, word we made up. It's it, it just short for man of God or woman of God. And, and we'd say wog for woman of God or mog instead of man of God. It was just a little bit shorter. And, you know, that's what we wanted to be. God, make me a mog, a, a, a man of God. Or, or when we saw somebody or knew somebody who really exhibited godly character and, and that person was, their sinful nature was in check and the fruit of the Holy Spirit was all over them, we would call that person a wog or a mog. And, and, and that's what David is. He's a man of God. 
Now, uh, he was a hero, and from that uh, relationship with God came incredible military exploits, incredible leadership of a nation as king, incredible worship leader. You know, half of the 150 Psalms David uh, has written, and so just an amazing man. Now, the Holy Spirit is going to make sure that we don't leave David's life without getting some insights as to what was behind some of this greatness. Um, The closing chapters now that we've seen in David's life, chapter 22 was David's life song, which was really Psalm 18, And, and, and then in chapter 23, the first half, that we've already seen last week is David's dying song, uh, seven verses. And so between the life song and the dying song, back to back, we get his greatness sprang from his love relationship with God. He lived a God-centered life. His unwavering trust in God, his desire to serve the Lord and do the right thing always with this incredible reverence for God. And that that was really what made David tick. It made him uh, a blessed man. It made him a man after God's own heart. Now, of course, it was about David's relationship. uh, But here now, in these verses that follow, 8 to 39, we learn that it wasn't just about David's relationship. It was about the people around him. They are called the mighty men of David, David's mighty men. Uh, David's unparalleled success was the result of these brave, valiant soldiers. You know, he is nothing without them, and they are nothing without him. And so it's an interesting section because you just get a a bunch of names. There are 37 names or so uh, as you read. And and we just go through and we get little shout outs here and there. What made these men so special? And so certainly there's a lot of different ways you could look at this, uh, these couple paragraphs tonight. Uh, You could see what makes a good leader because their devotion says a lot about who David was as a king. You could see this whole teaching as what makes good follower, uh, the importance of a solid team or doing God's work. Uh, But if we see David as a type of Christ, which he is, a type of the Lord Jesus, and, and we see these loyal men as a type of devoted follower, then the tack that we could take tonight is what makes a man or woman of God. What are the qualities? What kind of life did they lead? And I I would assume that 99% of the people in this room want to be a man or woman of God, a person after God's own heart. These things in the Old Testament were written for our examples, and these men are devoted to their king as we must be devoted to ours. So we're going to pick up here. We're going to just walk through one by one and, and see what we can glean from these mighty men of God. Now, verse 8. These are the names of David's mighty men. Josheb, Bathshebeth, Atakemonite, uh, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. And that's all we're going to get about this leader. Apparently, among David's mighty men, 
there were three leaders, and of the three leaders, this guy is number one. And so we're going to begin with him. But before we get into him killing 800 uh, men with one cell phone, <laughs> it wouldn't be hard to do if you handed me the cell phone. I, I could do some pretty good damage in a congregation this size. All right. By way of inference, what does this say? Listen to this. This is exciting. Within the kingdom of God, there are various positions of honor. Uh, Men and women uh, will be distinguished by their faithfulness in, in this life and in the life to come. Now, there are rankings of honor in the kingdom of God and with King David. He has his top three, and of the top three, there's a number one, number two, and number three. Now, that's amazing. He also has a top 30, and he has a leader over them, and he has top 600. Now, the Lord Jesus had 120, he had 70, he had 12, he had three, and he had one, equal among others, but he had one. You could say that could have been John, or that could have been Peter, uh, but the point is, is, is that there are places of honor, especially in the life to come, that, that are very important to think about this. In Matthew 20, uh, Zebedee's sons, James and John, prompted maybe perhaps by their mom, because the mom's involved in one of the gospel accounts, they come to Jesus and they say, uh, Lord, we've got a favor to ask you. And the, and the Lord says, what can I do for you? And they say, when you come in your glory, we want to sit one of us on your right and one on the left. And the Lord says, "Uh, I don't think you know what you're asking. Uh, Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And they say, we can. We're in. We want those two seats. (laughs) And he says, well, you know, in fact, you will drink the cup, but those two spots are already uh, chosen. Uh, They're not mine to say. The Father has placed people there. There are going to be uh, honored positions in the kingdom of God. Now, how did they get to sit next to Jesus like that? Well, in Matthew 25 and Luke 19, there are two parables that talk about our lives as Christian servants, as investors, and that at the end, when we see the king, he will evaluate our lives for faithfulness. And uh, that is how you end up in an honored position or lack thereof. And so uh, according to your abilities, not competing against others, I'm not competing against other pastors or evangelists. Uh, You're not competing against uh, professional pastors. You're not competing against anybody except yourself. Because God knows what he gave you. He knows your abilities. He knows what he, he expects of you. He knows your God-given potential. And that is the race you're running. And how you end up running that race is going to determine a lot. So it's not about salvation, uh, earning it. It's not about uh, your worth or personal value to God. It's not about how much God loves you. It's not about outward, visible, big-time uh, accomplishments. You know, Jesus gave a shout-out to a, an older woman with two pennies. So, or a cup of cold water will get reward. So what we're talking about here is positions of honor. There always have been. 
There's always been kind of a ranking, and there always will be, and that ranking is eternal, and it will be based on your faithfulness in this life. Paul put it this way, inspired by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way to get the prize. So Paul knows something. He knows that in the life to come, he will be evaluated and there will be positions of distinguished roles and honor based on how we fight the good fight here. So I highly recommend that you take your personal walk with God very seriously. So what set Josheb apart? He's number one, top three, uh, and number one in of them. For one thing, the Bible says it's a big deal. A man of God or a woman of God doesn't give up even though they're outnumbered. All right, so the one sentence we have about this man is, is that he took on 800 enemy combatants in one battle and he stood and fought and won. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd have a hard time with eight, you know, <laughs> and then in a harder time with 80, but 800. Seriously, Warren Wiersbe says the only way he can imagine this happening is if the Lord put that, those, a big mass of them in a panic and they, they went off a cliff or something like that. But you know what? It doesn't matter how it happened. I believe it happened the way that it says here. Uh, here's what's important for us. A man of God doesn't lose his head. So when I say man, man of God from now on, ladies, I'm including you. All right, because uh, we're talking about men and women, but so that I don't always have to say a man of God and a woman of God, just know that I'm talking to all of us here. So a man of God uh, doesn't lose his head, doesn't turn, doesn't run. Uh, let all hell come against me. Eight, 80, or 800, or 8,000. I'm gonna stand my ground and I'm gonna fight. Now something we can all relate to being over uh, outnumbered, I should say. We're outnumbered in a Christ-rejecting world that loves wickedness. We're outnumbered by worldly believers and believers who go chasing after every wind of doctrine. We're outnumbered by spiritual enemies. The Bible calls them rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world. We're outnumbered. It's more than 800. Outnumbered by character flaws within, weaknesses, temptations, outnumbered by our sins. Psalm 38 and verse 4, I love this. For my sins are gone over my head as a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Again, in Psalm 65, uh, when we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. Are there 800 sins that we wrestle with? 800 regrets, 800 bad memories. The man of God, the woman of God, though 800 enemies come at us, the one who will be honored in the end is the one who doesn't go running away, whimpering and um, defeated. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. Psalm 27 and verse three. We don't run. It doesn't matter who or what. We don't run. Number two, Eleazar, a man with a sword. Let's read about him, 9 and 10. So next to him was Eleazar. Uh, as one of the three mighty men, 
he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Paz Damim for battle. Then the men of Israel retreated, but he stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. Okay, so number two, if you're taking notes, uh, men and women of God are one with the sword. You're gonna be a person who's devoted to God. You will be one with the sword. And we'll find out what that means now. So if Joseph's example emphasizes inner motivation and courage, the first guy, then this second guy, Eleazar, emphasizes the method of how we become a man of God. It's all about the sword. Verse 10, his hand is frozen to the sword. He becomes one with the weapon. Well, what can we learn? He's in the fight of his life, like we. He has a weapon, a sword, like we do, the word of God. He never loosens his grip ever, like we must never do. He becomes one with that word of God. Uh, Nehemiah chapter four, verse 17 says, they're, they're, they've got this project from God. They need to build together as the people of God and they're building together, but they have a tool in one hand and a weapon in the other and they never put down their weapon. You're gonna be a man of God or a woman of God, never, ever put down the word of God. That means never take it out of your mind, never take it out of your heart, never stop reading it or memorizing it or using it or living it every day. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4. In the armor of God metaphor, there's only one weapon used offensively to fight. And that's the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, Ephesians chapter six. But Jesus, our example, was tempted by the devil, attacked viciously when he was down and out, having fasted 40 days and 40 nights. The Lord came at him with the word. It is written, it is written, it is written. And the devil was defeated. The word of God is your source of life source of salvation, source of guidance, joy, purity, wisdom, and blessing. I'm scripture references for all of those are quotes that the word of God are these things. Joshua 1.6, God told Joshua, my word shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and you will have success. The thing that distinguished man number two was his relentless grip on the sword. He lived by it, he died by it. Are you armed? Is the word of God on your lips, in your mind? When you're challenged, when you're tempted, when you see a bad attitude coming out of you, when you see your life and you observe the lives around you, are you quickened to think about the biblical answer or solution or position you should be in? That's what makes a man or a woman of God. One with your weapon. Shamas, number uh, three, uh, 11 and 12, verse 11 and 12. Next to him was Shamas, son of Agi, the Harite. When the Philistines uh, bended together at a place, 
ended together at a place <laughs> where there was a field full of lentils. Israel's troops fled from them. Bashama took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought a great victory. So number three, if you're taking notes, a man of God, a woman of God, stands when others bail. Now, we like to sing uh, the song, Though None Go With Me, Still I Will Follow, but let me assure you that it's a way, uh, it's, it's very much easier to sing it than to live that out. Into every life, a little defection must fall. A pastor will go sideways. Uh, someone you admire or respect will uh, falter. Uh, famous Christian leader, uh, Christian, so-called Christian spouse, just walks and says, good morning, I don't love you anymore. Or the kids raised in church just depart. When a, a best friend drops you and the faith like a hot potato, when many in the Christian world begin to gravitate toward more popular, hip, false teaching, um, the Israeli troops fled and so do the troops in the pews and in the church. And it feels like you get the wind knocked out of you when that happens when you feel deserted. But then we find out what you're made of. Was it your faith or theirs that was keeping you going the whole time? Shaman didn't need his buddy's faith support. He had his own, thank you very much. They all deserted him. They all left. And where did they leave him hanging? They left him hanging in a field of lentils. Now, what was that all about? The troops said, you, you think we're going to put our lives in jeopardy for a, a, a field of beans? No, we're out of here. He stood and he fought against the Philistines, even though everybody left him because they thought, you know, it's just a pea pad. It's just a pea, pea what, a, what do you call them? <laughs> a pea patch. Thank you. I was thinking iPod. I, I don't know. It's just an iPod Peapod patch. It's a Blackberry. No, never mind. You know what he said? He said, um, they said, I'm not dying over a field of lentils. And you know what he said? He said, they're the Lord's lentils. They're growing in the promised land. Uh, you'll have to kill me first before you take what God has given me to take care of. So the second lesson in this man's life is a man of God fights for what God has entrusted to him, even the little stuff. All right, three more guys now from the top 30. They're unnamed. They may be these three guys, but every, all the scholars argue about it. I think it's three other guys from the, from the top 30. Uh, here's what they did, the kind of men that they were is revealed now by a snippet from their lives. Verses 13 through 17. Now, during harvest time, three of the 30 chief men came down to David at the cave of Adullam while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Raphaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold and the Philistines' garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty men broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. 
but he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this, he said. Is, is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David wouldn't drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty men. All right, let's stop and think about them. Uh, I'll give you uh, the synopsis here. Men of God, women of God will stop at nothing when it comes to pleasing their king. Now, this little uh, incident says a lot about David as their leader. Uh, They felt obligated because of what David means to them and what he's done for them. Uh, Remember at the beginning, you'll recall when these guys came to work with David, 1 Samuel 22, listen to this. All those who were in distress or in debt or, or discontented gathered around him and he became their leader. These are guys, these guys that we're talking about, they love their leader because when they came in, they were men with felt need. They were oppressed by King Saul and his wicked administration. They were living in misery. They were helpless, hopeless. They were in debt. They were gonna be sold into slavery. And they sought out David as the man after God's own heart God's anointed, who was a king, but not really held that way in the world. He was despised and rejected and unpopular. But coming together, joining themselves to the Lord's anointed, even though it was in shameful conditions and running and and, uh, all of that, they lived and they fought and they duked it out together. And eventually, these guys rose to royal status, men of wealth and fame and honor, because of uniting with God's anointed. And we come to our king the same way, the Lord's anointed in the same condition. We were once oppressed by not Saul, but Satan in his wicked administration, living our lives in misery, uh, in debt and sin, helpless, hopeless. Uh, And we sought out the king. And even though he was despised and rejected, He raised us to life. He exalted us to royal status. Kings and queens, co-heirs with the king, wealth of this world, uh, all is ours in Christ. So if the king wants a cup of cold water or he's thirsting for something that I can give, my heart says I will give it. What was the scenario here that happened, this act of loving sacrifice that they felt obligated because of their love for this king? Well, it's harvest time. That's important. So you know there's no water around. There's no water in the cisterns. So they're kind of trapped in that cave, and they are thirsty. David, dry and parched and blistered and dreaming about his hometown, 13 miles away, where the Philistines were guarding at the gates. And he was just thinking, letting his mind wander, and he was thinking about that sweet, pure, fresh, wonderful water from it right down the street where he used to live. And he says, kind of out loud to himself, really, and in jest, man, what would I do for a cup of water from that sweet spring from my house? 13 miles away were the Philistines. He's not asking anybody to go and do it, but those three guys love their king. They're indebted to their king. They want to please him. They live to make him happy. You know what I'm talking about with the Lord, right? And so their eyebrows go wiggling at each other when he says, oh man, I'd love to have a cup of 
water from my hometown. And they're like, let's do, let's do this. So they go 13 miles one way, break through enemy lines, get a little water, and they bring it back 13 miles again, risk their lives, and they say, hey, David, you thirsty? Where'd you get that? Bethlehem. <laughs> Bethlehem? What are you doing in my hometown? Yeah, you know that spring that you grew up by? That, that fret, this is the water from home. What, his heart, well, when he looked in there, he didn't see water. He saw blood. He saw you, you risked. Listen, I appreciate it. I love you guys. I can't drink this. I didn't ask you. Uh, you know what? And the guys are like, spend it the way you want. This is a gift from us to you. And if you want to drink it, drink it. If you want to water the garden, water the garden. If you want to give it to God, give it to God. And he says, it's too precious for me to drink. I've got to give it to God. He says, Lord, this is for you. And he pours it out. I think the guys are happy because David's happy. And that's all that mattered for them. He wouldn't drink it. This sacrifice is worthy of God, not of man. Now, finally, there are two more men worth mentioning and will be done. So let's handle them one at a time. 18 and 19. Abishai, the brother of Joab, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed. And so he became as famous as the three. Was, not, was he not held in greater honor than the three? He became their commander, even though he was not included among them. All right, so this is interesting. We have another three, and we have Joab kind of leading them, but he wasn't included officially. So here's the takeaway is I would say it's number seven. I hope that you're still tracking with me. Did you get number six? Well, you probably didn't get five either. Did you get five? No? Okay, five is men of God will stop at nothing. I remember saying that, so sorry. You're wrong there. Number six, a man of God is driven by love that never forgets what the king saved them from. All right? And number seven now, uh, the man or woman of God serves God without the need of public recognition. There's a lot of things you could say about Abishai. Oh, he's all over the story. He saved David's life once. Remember that guy was bearing down on him? And David almost is edited from the story. And Abishai comes in and kills him and says, from now on, you're not going out anymore because you're getting a little rusty, a little older now, right? Well, That's not down here, but what do we hear? We hear the big deal. What's amazing that the Holy Spirit wants to point out is that even though he was excluded, somehow he didn't have the official recognition of commanding these guys. He had more honor than the three that were included, he being the excluded one. So in other words, he's not a big baby who, who, who let not being included in the three um, sabotage his service to God. And I think if you're ever going to be honored as a man or woman of God, you'll need to grow up. You'll need to stop getting offended at every time a hat drops and that uh, it... Uh, 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 <laughs> Uh, uh, these 
men and women of God are emotionally adults. Uh, they're no longer children. When I was a child, I talked as a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man or a woman, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Paul, the apostle, 1 Corinthians 13. I like what one writer said about Abishai. While every human being wants to be seen and affirmed for the good they contribute, in this imperfect world, proper recognition doesn't always happen. It didn't happen for Abishai, and instead of letting bitterness consume him and self-absorbed thinking sabotage his service to God, he served valiantly, and God made sure everyone knew it. So he never got the official title, never was recognized, and he never cared. Now, why didn't he get the official title? Probably because he's the nephew of the king. And it's awkward. It would be awkward, nepotism kind of thing. It's, yeah, of course you exalt your nephew because he's uh, the son of your sister, Zeruiah, right? Maybe that's why. It didn't matter to him because the Holy Spirit says he outshined them all anyway. He didn't need the title. He's not included. And there's a shout out like, wow, amazing. He outshined the three that, that just kind of excluded him. It's just really kind of a nice thing. Servants go unthanked and unnoticed and unrecognized by men all the time, but never by God. And on that great day, Paul the Apostle say, says this, we will all receive our praise from God. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5. God doesn't miss a thing. He just really doesn't. And I meant that in a good way, in an encouraging way. I saw a couple faces where like, oh, no. <laughs> I was like, no, he's seeing the good things, too. All right, 20 through 23, the last man standing. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was a valiant fighter from Kabzael who performed great exploits. He struck down two of Moab's best men. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. I guess he got bored. <laughs> 21. And he struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. <laughs> Verse 22. Such were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. He too was as famous as the three mighty men. He was held in great honor than any of the 30, but he was not included among the three. And David put him in charge of his bodyguard. So another guy who didn't get the recognition or the official title that said, you know what, I don't need that. I'm going to shine anyway. So number eight, a man of God or a woman of God, no matter what situation they find themselves in, they're ready and willing and able so we have this other guy here. He's given, he, we have three exploits uh, of his heroism. Uh, number one, he struck down two of Moab's fiercest guys. Number two, verse 20, he, he went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion, but we don't really know why. Why did he do that? Well, one commentator, you know, maybe somebody was in harm's way, you know. But uh, one a writer, a pastor, F.W. Borem, said something beautiful. He wrote a whole sermon on that one passage. He said, this man met the worst of enemies in the worst of places 
under the worst of conditions and won. This is the kind of man he was. He struck down this huge Egyptian with a spear. He only had a club. So like Benaiah here, this, this guy uh, lives this way. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Benaiah's attitude reflects uh, all the 37. And here's what his attitude is. If God has called me to do it, if he expects me to accomplish it, if this is for God's goodwill, if it would make his heart glad, if it would strengthen his people, if it would further his cause, if it would win a lost soul, if it would glorify him, count me in, regardless of the cost to me, convenience, risk, effort, danger, or intimidation levels. All of that is irrelevant because of who he is to me. Now, when I had my bone marrow transplant, I was in the hospital for a couple months total. I got into a rough spot a couple times, and one of them was that I was out of platelets. And the hospital is very conservative with, with the platelets. And I was down to dangerous levels where I could have a bleed, a brain bleed, and they were very concerned. And so I needed somebody to come to the hospital and give me platelets, donate platelets. And donating, donating platelets is a big deal. It's a lot bigger than giving blood. They spin them out. that You have to be connected on one side and the other, and they spin those platelets out of your blood. And some people have adverse reactions to it. People do, it takes a couple hours. People don't like to do it. So Barb called my mentor at the seminary where I was a student at the time, and he came right away, dropped what he was doing. He was teaching a class or whatever, and he came and he donated two huge bags of platelets, and they rushed them in, hooked them up into my room. Meanwhile, I'm thinking, I'm going to have a brain bleed any moment and die. I was just ticking, watching the clock. Get that man here. And he came, he just dropped everything, he just came, and they put this big fat bag of, they're yellow, yellow platelets. And, and I remember the nurse hooking them up and saying, I've never seen a bag this fat filled with platelets, and I was like, fuck you. If Bob Royal called me today and said, you know, I live in Georgia now, she does, or North Carolina, one of those states over there. <laughs> I need a favor. Would you drive out something for me? I need you to, are you kidding me? Can I walk it out to you? Could I run it out? Could I carry it on my back for you, the 3,500 miles? He can, he, he can ask me to do anything. That I, it, would, it would be such a joy, even if there was some kind of pain involved, because I could just kind of, I want it to be something challenging to kind of show him. It didn't matter what you could ask me for, what you did for me, well, it saved my life. How much more the blood of Jesus, our king. It's just an amazing uh, privilege to be able to think of every little thing I do and give up. Every time I just keep a tight rein on my mouth. Every time I die to some kind of stupid sin. Every time I do anything for God, I'm just saying, thank you. Thank you. 
You're my king. I, I'm indebted to you. I, I know where I would be without you. And all this is because of that gratitude. And this is what these guys felt, right? Uh, unfortunately, it closes kind of with a sobering thing. There are only there are 30 names are given now, but there's actually something in there. First of all, there's no Joab anywhere. Did you notice? Joab, Joab's on every other page in First and Second Samuel. What's up with that? Well, Joab is brutal. Joab was conniver. And at the end, what does he do? He betrays David and wants to get behind Adonijah for king. He wants to overthrow King David at the end. And Solomon has him executed. So he's not in the group. And then there are two names in the 30 that we should just pause and recognize. Number one in verse 34, Eliam, son of Ahithophel. This is Bathsheba's father. Bathsheba's father was one of David's closest friends and most loyal and trusted bodyguards. He's in the top 30. And in verse 39, Uriah the Hittite. Bathsheba's husband is in the top 30 as well. Now, let me take you back to that ominous chapter. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, quote, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. You do know how they, why they phrase that that way. Your, her daddy is one of your best fighters, one of your bodyguards. Her husband is one of your best friends. It just made it doubly grievous. The wife of one of your devoted top 30, the daughter of one of your devoted top 30, the granddaughter of your devoted top counselor, Ahithophel. Ahithophel is Eliam's father. Ahithophel wasn't in the top 30, but he's one of David's high counselors. So we got grandpa, we've got father, and we've got husband, and we've got adultery. Right at that sentence, he could have said, man, you know what? I'm going to go for another walk. This is going to be a prayer walk of repentance and get right with God right there. But he didn't. I just want to say note to self and everyone, all right? Unchecked sin will turn you into a brute beast. It will rob you of human sympathy, fear of God, and common sense. It will turn you into a despicable human being. You will stop at nothing to satisfy it. And the worst culprits of all is sex, pleasure, and greed. Watch it. Or you'll end up like a man of God who could hear in his own hearing. It's Eliam is her daddy. Uriah is her husband, Ahithophel, her granddaddy, and do it anyway. So we've got to watch that. Now, for David, you know what? He, that wasn't who he truly was. He was having a brute beast episode, and they happen, unfortunately. But you know what? His last half of his life was very complicated and painful because of that. So he, he paid in some ways. The Lord took away his sin, but he was restored and, you know, we find out who's who at the end. 
of our lives. Now, on a good note, how wonderful to know that our king is incapable of disappointing us, one author wrote. Completely, Jesus is without sin. In our king, there's no darkness. We can serve our king with unrestrained love without holding back anything because this king is able to keep that which we've entrusted to him until that great day we see him face to face. So count me in, whether by life or by death, all my heart, mind, soul, strength and resources, hopes and dreams for my king, the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, who came to rescue me and you to shed his own blood and die in our place so that we might be right with God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, when we think about who you are and what Jesus means to us, we, we're motivated to be one of these mighty warriors and servants devoted to you with all of our hearts. Father God, we are convicted by the passage. We know we fall short. We just, we just ask that you would help us to strive, to pray, to take one day at a time, to let your spirit work these graces into us as we cooperate with him. In Jesus' name, amen. I've got that list for you here. We're going to put that up on the screen. These are the things to remember. The man of God doesn't give up when outnumbered. A man of God is one with a sword. A man of God continues to serve when others bail. A man of God fights to protect what God has entrusted to his care. A man of God will stop at nothing to please his king. A man of God is driven by love that never forgets his debt to the king. The man of God serves without the need for recognition. The man of God is ready, willing, and able, no matter what the circumstances, the situation. The part that really spoke to me was getting the, the water from Bethlehem and just thinking there are so many ways that our king is thirsty for things, you know. He's not even necessarily asking, but I know what he likes and I know what would please him and put a smile on his face. And usually those things cost me a little bit. And it's such a joy to, instead of thinking of those things as things I don't want to do or it's going to cost me a little bit or, you know, dragging my feet, to think about putting a smile on his face that he's thinking, oh man, if only, and then there's that thing that Jesus is thinking. And I could bring it and say, look what I have for you. Not only I think he takes it and receives it. That's what I want to do. That's what I want all of us to do. Running around trying to please our king, no matter the cost to us, Amen. He's worthy. Father, we thank you for your great love. We don't want to try to earn anything or even pay you back, but we just want to show you the same kind of love that you showed us. 
you laid everything down for us. And therefore, as Paul the Apostle says, we, we ought to lay our lives on the altar, be living sacrifices to you. You poured everything into us. We want to give everything back to you. That's when we're truly blessed anyway. And all those little things that we would bring you to drink that cost us a little bit are actually things that are good for us and bless us as well. So, Lord, change our minds and help us change our hearts. Help us to want to live as men and women of God. In Jesus' name, amen.